I didn't say sit down. <laughs> Stand back up and give somebody that you didn't come with a hug and then you can sit down. Thanks, guys. Those were worship leaders on loan from Calvary Chapel Rancho Santa Margarita. I really appreciate them coming out. A couple of announcements. I uh, just want to remind you on the 4th of July, there's the outreach at the Laguna Hills Community Center from 1 until uh, 10 o'clock or so, fireworks show at 9. And, and um, Pastor Jose has some people to do that. They're going to just share the Lord and and uh, do face painting and, f and make food and all sorts of things. So sounds like a fun event, and if you'd like to help with that, that'd be awesome. Uh, we're having a married couples fellowship potluck. This is kind of kicking off our, our marriage ministry, and the potluck is Saturday, August 2nd at 5.30 here at the church. So for all of you couples, encourage you to get that on your calendar and um, Charlie and Virginia are going to be in the back after the service to take sign up so we'd like to know how many people are planning on coming so encourage you to sign up for that tonight. Our Camp Calvary which is our one day VBS is Tuesday July 22nd from 9 to 2. And if you have kids, you'll definitely want to participate in that. It was a lot of fun. We did it last year, and we had the whole sanctuary full of huge inflatable toys. And if we get enough kids to sign up, we'll do that again. If not, it might just be Ken Kreekak and I turning a jump rope for the kids. So <laughs> if your kids are planning on coming to that, make sure you sign up for that as well. And then our family camp in August. They could still use a few people to help out with children's ministry for it. And if you're going to the family camp and you help with the kids, you get half price off your camp. So um, it's a great deal because you'll only have to work either the morning session or the evening session. So you'll be able to have a lot of time. The whole afternoon's off for everyone. So um, I imagine there's a sign-up sheet. Otherwise, just call the office. I don't know. So... If I just fall asleep, it's been kind of a busy week. We found out Monday at 4.45 that we were going to move Tuesday. So fortunately, a lot of the guys from the church chipped in, and a friend got us a big moving truck. And, and, uh, but if there was ever a day when I was just going to stay home, <laughs> it would be tonight. But I didn't. So I'm glad you're here, too. And I'm excited to be here. I'm not complaining. But... If I just pass out in the middle of the service or something, just file out quietly. Maybe you guys could come up and do one song as people just file out and we'll be fine. <laughs> Turning your Bibles over to Matthew chapter 1. We're studying through the Bible, but I took a break after the book of Numbers and we're going to go through the gospel of Matthew. Matthew is the gospel that most ties in with the Old Testament. And I didn't want to go all the way through Malachi and then have four Gospels back to back, so I'll sneak the Gospels in every once in a while as we're going through the Old Testament. 
all of the Gospels, a lot of times people go ask, why are there four Gospels? Couldn't you just have one that tells the story? And actually, there are some problems because as you read the four Gospels, they tell the story a little bit differently. And a lot of times people say, you know, they don't believe that these are valid because they, in some areas, present a, quite a different picture. Well, first of all, if you've ever, or you could talk to a police officer to verify this, if you have several witnesses to an event and they all say exactly the same thing, then you know that they're lying. You know that they got together and compared stories because people see things from different perspectives. And so the fact that the Gospels present a different view to me is really encouraging in terms of the integrity of Scripture. Because if what they were trying to do was to con people, they would have fixed all the things that seemed to present problems. And instead, they recorded it exactly the way it was. But also, we find out that each gospel was written to a different audience and for a different purpose. The Gospel of Matthew, as we're going to see, is presenting Jesus as the Messiah, the one that had been promised in the Old Testament. So there's a huge amount of prophecy that we see that's fulfilled in the Gospel of Matthew because that's what it's trying to say. It's trying to say, look at Jesus and you'll realize he's the one the Old Testament was talking about. And so it presents this unique picture. It was written primarily to a Jewish audience. There are some scholars, well, Actually, there were a couple of church fathers way back in around 200 AD who said that originally the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew wrote his Gospel in Hebrew and was translated into Greek later so that the Gentiles could read it. Actually, back then a lot of Jews didn't read Hebrew, but most of them read Greek. I'm a little skeptical of that. I mean, just because a few people said that, we've never found any manuscripts of Matthew in Hebrew. And so Matthew certainly would have been, as a businessman, he was one of Jesus' disciples, and he records his own calling, you know, when Jesus called him to, to uh, come and be a disciple over chapter 9. But, but uh, he was a tax collector. He was a businessman, probably would have known Greek. It's written in a very... Um, literate form of Greek. So it's possible that it was originally written in Hebrew and then translated over into Greek. We don't know. But what we do know is that Matthew wrote it because that no one disagrees with that. Matthew was the one who wrote the book of Matthew. He was writing specifically to Jews to say, here's the Messiah. So that's the purpose of it. Just quickly, the book of Mark. Mark was written in order to show Jesus as a servant, really emphasizing his service and kind of geared more to Gentiles, but more to Romans. Luke emphasizes Jesus Christ as a man, Jesus in his humanity. And so the Gospel of Luke addressed maybe more of a, of a Greek audience who that was a bigger deal for them. The Gospel of John presents Jesus Christ as God. And it's a general, it, the Gospel of John is actually addressed more to believers to let them know Jesus really is God. He is God in the flesh. And so you see each of these themes throughout all four Gospels. But basically, Matthew presenting Jesus as Messiah, Mark presenting him as a servant, Luke presenting him as a man, and John presenting him as God. That's a basic outline to kind of keep in mind. And you'll see as we go through Matthew, as we begin to move through it, that 
In fact, the theme, as Matthew lays it all out, the theme is Jesus is the Messiah. Or some people say the theme of it is the kingdom of heaven. Because Matthew uses that phrase a lot of times, kingdom of heaven, for thus is the kingdom of heaven. It's used in Matthew 32 times. It's not used anywhere else in scripture. The word kingdom is used, I think, 50 times in the book of Matthew. So again, creating this really concise picture of the fact that Jesus Christ is the king who was promised he would come. He's the Messiah. The book in, in most of our versions is called The Gospel According to Matthew. The original title of it was just Kata Matthion, According to Matthew. And then they added on the gospel because it does present the gospel. Well, let's start reading in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, Jacob begot Judah and his brothers, Judah begot Perez and one of the first Mexicans, and Terah by Tamar, Perez begot Hezron, Hezron begot Ram, Ram. Wait a minute. I mean, this is strange. This is an important book. It's the first book in the New Testament. It's the first thing that we've heard since Malachi, and there's hundreds of years in between. Isn't it kind of weird that it starts with a genealogy? It starts with this list of, if you were going to pick up a New Testament, and you opened it up and you began to read, and you just saw all these names, you would go, brother, what is this book? And a lot of people I know started reading the Bible in Matthew and just never got halfway through the first chapter. Now, for that reason, I don't think Matthew is that great of a book I, I, to, to tell people. It's a great book. I love, I love Matthew, but it's not a good book to tell someone, why don't you just start reading through the New Testament? Unless they're really serious about it. Now, ironically, the book that everyone tells people when you're a new Christian you should read is what? Gospel of John. Everybody says, Gospel of John, read it. Personally, I don't tell people to read the Gospel of John first either. Now, just for a minute, suspend judgment and just think that you're, okay, yeah, don't, you know, kill me. Put yourself in the place of someone who doesn't know anything about the Bible and who doesn't know anything about Jesus. Now you start reading, somebody says, read the Gospel of John. So you start reading and it says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. The life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Oh, must be the John that wrote the book. No, this is a different John. I mean, you get the point? It's not real easy reading in the beginning. And so I would say if you're going to tell someone to start reading somewhere, I'd suggest maybe the Gospel of Mark. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend Matthew, and again, not particularly John. If you read it with an open mind, you'll go, what is this saying? This doesn't make sense to me. This genealogy, though, and you find throughout scriptures, genealogies are important to God because people are important. Now, this genealogy, there are actually two genealogies, well, really three of Jesus. We have this one in Matthew, and interestingly, this genealogy traces Jesus back to, you know, Abraham, through David, and to Joseph, his, his stepfather. 
you know, see at the end. And Jacob begat Joseph, verse 16, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. It's actually not, um, you know, it says Jesus was born of Mary, but actually Joseph's father wasn't Jacob. That was Mary's father. They used the same language either way. Now, over in the book of Luke, chapter 3, you see a different genealogy, and that genealogy goes back to Adam, and it comes through David as well, and it winds up with Mary. Now, as to why you don't, and, and people will ask you this question sometimes, I get asked it every once in a while, why are these two genealogies different? And why would Matthew trace a genealogy to Joseph, basically, even though Joseph wasn't, according to Matthew, the father of Jesus? Well, when you're dealing with who sits on the throne, who has the right to actually rule, the fact that Jesus was the adopted son of Joseph but the fact that Joseph's genealogy can get traced back to Abraham and can get traced back to David, he has the legal right to sit on the throne. Now, Luke, who's concerned about establishing Jesus as a man, for one thing, he doesn't just go back to Abraham. He goes back to Adam. And he goes through Mary because in order for Jesus to be fully man, to be human, he had to you had to trace his biology back as a human to Adam. And so that's what's done there in Luke because that's the purpose of the Gospel of Luke. Now, there are some people who will put these genealogies side by side and say, look, there are some similarities, but there are a lot of differences. Well, they were related to each other at various points along the way. Also, it doesn't list each person. It's doing you know, summaries. Typically, this is the way the Bible did genealogies. They'd pick up key people along the way. Another interesting note about this genealogy in Matthew 1 that I really like, it contains some people that would have never been listed in normal genealogies. By the way, in those days, up until 70 AD in the temple, they kept the records of every genealogy. The Jews were like Mormons in that respect. I mean, they kept really meticulous records. And so the reason they would put a genealogy like this in here is because if Jesus said, hey, you know, I'm, the king, I'm supposed to be the king of the Jews, they could go back into the temple up until 70 AD and they could look these names up and see, sure enough, this is legit, this is it. And so, oh, anyway, the, the people who are interesting in here, genealogies would never mention women ever. Not that they didn't matter necessarily. It's kind of like today. When you get married, you usually take the husband's name. And there are some people who do the hyphenated thing. But, you know, basically, we still kind of do the same thing. When a woman gets married, her line ends, and she becomes a part of her husband's line. And those who don't marry or who don't have children, at least, their line ends anyway. But here in this genealogy, check it out. Uh, in verse 3, it says, Judah begat Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Man, you remember that? I mean, Tamar not only is a woman, she was a Canaanite woman. She wasn't even Jewish. In fact, all four of these women are dubious in some ways, and they're all Gentiles. But... But Tamar, and by the way, they could be in this line, you know, and, and not pollute the gene pool because this is a legal line. But you remember the story of Tamar. Basically, she conned, you know, she, you know, got involved illicitly with Judah and, 
You know, it wasn't, it wasn't a pretty story at all, and yet, there she is in the line of Christ. Um, you read on in verse uh, 5, and it says that uh, Salmon begat Boaz by Rahab. Rahab, remember her? In Jericho, she was the prostitute who hid the spies and ended up hanging the, yellow, the red cord out of her. Well, when we get into Joshua, you'll freshen your memory on that story. But she was someone who's kind of famous for being Rahab the harlot. She's kind of famous for being Rahab the liar. And yet Hebrews 11 points her out as being someone who had faith. And so she's in the line of Christ as well. Boaz begat Obed by Ruth. Ruth was a Moabitess. They weren't supposed to have anything to do with Moabitesses. And yet, you know the wonderful story of Ruth, the love story, how she came and, and put her lot in with the, with the Jewish people and said to her, for, for her mother-in-law, you know, your people will be my people, your God, my God, and so on. So here's a Gentile who was converted to Judaism and was in the line of Christ. And then in verse 6, her name isn't given, but it says, David the king begot Solomon, by her who had been the wife of Uriah. That was, a, that was Bathsheba. And you remember what happened with her. And, and um, she was a Hittite. And again, why would she get in, listed in this, uh, in, in this line of Jesus Christ? I think there are a couple of reasons why. One of them is that Jesus ultimately didn't come just for the Jews. And right here off the top, as we're looking at the genealogy, there's more involved than just Jewish people. He intended to bless Israel so that through them all the nations of the world would be blessed. And so including these four Gentile gals reinforces that. It causes us to realize, us who are Gentiles, to realize that, hey, we fit in here too. There's a place for us. And each of these stories, I could go on and on about them. They all have a lot of interesting parallels with the situations that we find ourselves in. But um, would never get through the book of Matthew if I get sidetracked too much. But that's just, oh, the other reason is God's grace in each case. And there are some people who see kind of the plan of salvation in the inclusion of these four gals. With Tamar, you see that, you know, the man is sinful and separated from God just that, that sin. And then you see in, with, um, with um, Rahab, you see what faith does in response to sin. And then with Ruth, you see the love that God has in laying himself down. And then finally with, um, with um, Bathsheba, you see what happens when... Uh, even when someone's a believer like David, and yet when we sin, there's forgiveness. There's, when there's repentance, God is forgiven. And so you can take that for what it's worth. It's interesting. I just think it's fascinating that God chose to choose. Chose to choose. I think it's fascinating that God decided to put these four women in this genealogy, and it's probably the most interesting thing about it. Verse 18, and we went through this story of the birth of Christ on Sunday morning, so um, we'll just read through it here, and I'll see if there's anything I might have left out on, on a Sunday. The birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed or engaged to Joseph, before they came together, 
She was found with child of the Holy Spirit. That's the, the virgin birth. They hadn't had sex and she was pregnant. Could be a problem. Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. Now, we talk a lot about Mary and what a wonderful, godly woman she was. We see what she says, what she did, and, and truly, she is blessed among women. And, and Mary is one that God chose in a real special way to bear the, the Son of God. And, and that's all right, and that's good. But I think Joseph gets not a lot of attention and yet realize, too, that God chose him because most guys, when, when their young fiancé turns up pregnant and they come in with this story about it was from the Holy Spirit, most of the guys would have exercised the law and had her stoned to death. But Joseph was a compassionate guy who said, I'm not going to, I don't want to see you hurt or anything. I don't understand this, but you know, we're going to deal with it. He was, a, he was quite a guy himself, and, and yet before the whole thing was botched up, while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. By the way, it says an angel of the Lord, and so on you'll see throughout this book and throughout the Gospels. In the Old Testament, the phrase is common, the angel of the Lord. And when it says the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, then we believe that those are appearances of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. We call them Christophanies or Theophanies, appearances of Christ before he was born. But as soon as Mary's pregnant, you don't ever hear the angel of the Lord anymore. It's always an angel of the Lord. Just an interesting side note. Appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Yeshua, really just, it should have been translated Joshua, but it, that just means Jehovah is salvation. For he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin, and it's interesting, the virgin, not a virgin, shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means the Almighty God is with us, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. A couple of the things that I pointed out on Sunday morning, but that are worth just mentioning again, she was the one who brought forth a son. It doesn't say she bore the son to Joseph. It says specifically they hadn't had relations. And obviously this is a fulfillment of this prophecy from Isaiah 7:14 that the sign would be that uh, a virgin would have a child. Now, there are people who would say, oh, you know, try to redefine the word virgin and, you know, it doesn't really necessarily mean someone who hasn't had relations, but then it's not a sign. If, you know, if two people have sex and the baby comes out, that's no miracle. I mean, it is a miracle, but it happens every day. And so obviously the virgin birth is something that's taught strongly in Scripture. Don't ever let anyone tell you that, oh, well, it's not that big of a deal. It's a huge deal. If Jesus was simply the product of Joseph and Mary, then he was just a man. 
And he died and he would stay dead and he couldn't bear the sins of the world. He had to be God completely and he had to be man completely. And I'd like to explain that to you, but I just don't have the time because I don't understand it myself. But it's what the Bible clearly teaches, completely God, completely man. And, and I love that, it, well, I mentioned on Sunday that he'll save his people from their sins. It's not just saving them from hell. It's not just saving them to give them a better life. Literally, the problem that we all have, the thing that causes all the trouble in the world is sin. And so Jesus came to remove that from us. If we don't accept that, if we don't understand that what's bugging us is our sin and desire to be separated from that sin, then there's really no salvation for us. We don't even want to be saved. If we don't want to get rid of the sin, if we think that, you know, we can just continue, well, you know, I'll still, I know it's sin, but I'll do it anyway. What you're saying is Jesus didn't save me from my sin because I still want the sin. I want to still hang on to it. And so I could go on and on on that. I think I probably did on Sunday. Um, but also, I, I just love those two words in verse 21, his people. It's not just talking about the Jewish people. Sometimes the Jewish people were called God's people. But Paul emphasizes in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 1, in Colossians and other places, that though we were dead... He gave us life, and he made us his people. And ultimately, we read um, over in Revelation 21 on Sunday morning that that's ultimately what heaven is all about, that we will be his people. He'll be our God. And so, again, uh, the beautiful story of the virgin birth. And then in verse 25, it makes it clear that... and. One thing I like about the Catholics is that they do hold to the virgin birth, and that is an important doctrine. They hang on to a lot of other goofy stuff, and, and they, they believe that Mary stayed a virgin her whole life. They also believe that she was, that she was um, co-redemptress somehow with Jesus, and that she was also born of a virgin, and they cloud the issue, but I mean, at least they believe the virgin birth, and that's a very important doctrine. But here it's obvious she didn't remain a perpetual virgin because it says he didn't know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. So obviously they ended up having a normal um, life and having kids between the two of them, and, and Jesus had half-brothers and sisters. Chapter 2. Now we have the story of the wise men. And it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, that's Herod the Great, who was a real nut. He, he did a lot of great things. But anytime you name yourself Herod the Great, you know, you got to wonder. But he did, I mean, he built aqueducts and, you know, developed some great cities and everything. But he was a really, he was, he had that short guy complex. And, and so he was always trying to prove himself and, and uh, just a weird guy. His family had major problems and everything. But, and you can see how insecure he is here. He was a fake to the throne. He had bribed himself into power. Wasn't even a Jew, but he was the leader of the Jews. And so it says, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. By the way, it doesn't say three wise men. 
It's always that way in the pictures and in the songs and stuff because there are three gifts that they bring. But it was probably a whole collection of wise men coming from the East. They wouldn't have got the kind of attention that they got if it was just three guys. Um, and they were probably descendants of the same uh, group of people that, well, we just studied about Balaam. And he was one of the founders of those magicians in those days. And these guys were also magi, and so they were probably related. And they probably knew about the star because of the prophecy of Balaam and other things that Balaam probably shared with them. But So these wise guys from the east came to Jerusalem and said, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Again, Numbers chapter 24, we saw that probably last week or the week before, I don't remember, on a Wednesday night, where Balaam made this prophecy about the star that was going to appear and the scepter that was going to come. And so Balaam had prophesied this, and, and they saw this unique star. They used to study the stars a lot. In those days, there wasn't a big difference between astronomers and astrologers like there is today. All of the guys who dabbled in those things that God had forbidden, um, those you know mind reading and all that kind of stuff, they also studied the stars. So these guys, something about the star let them know this is the star that Balaam was talking about. And they most likely had a lot of writings from Balaam that went more into detail than Numbers chapter 24. But so they show up in Jerusalem and they're going, okay, we saw the star, where's the king of the Jews? Well, Herod's not too happy about that. Because he's going, hey, wait, I'm the ruler of the Jews. I am Herod the Great. He, this guy is like a pro wrestler, but he couldn't have anyone else, you know, share the spotlight with him. And so he got concerned. He was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him, that's why I think there were probably a bunch of wise men, because everyone was hearing about, hey, all these wise men are coming in here, and they're looking for the king of the Jews. So everyone was concerned, and when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So Herod got all of these scribes and scholars and theologians and said, where does the Bible say the Messiah is going to be born? And they, they knew exactly what it was. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, but out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd his people Israel. That's a quote from Micah in uh, chapter 5. It's kind of sad that all these theologians had the head knowledge to know they should have seen. Here it's these foreigners who are coming in who are aware that the Messiah is coming. These guys knew all about the Messiah, but they weren't looking for him. And they didn't find him. They just had the facts down, like a lot of people today who study but don't come into a relationship with God. And it says, Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. So he called them and it goes, Now what time did you first see this star? Now it probably, it definitely didn't happen when Jesus was still in the manger. It probably had happened about a year or so before. Um, that they had seen the star. It would take them a long time to travel. They didn't take a jet. They were traveling with camels and probably a lot of people. So Herod wanted to pin down the date, and, and he sent them to Bethlehem. He said, yeah, it's Bethlehem. He said, go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. 
Yeah, right. He's going, well, I could go to Bethlehem and look for him, but hey, these guys are looking for him anyway. Hey, guys, I'll join you in worship. Come on, just come and let me know where he's at. And so they went off to Bethlehem, and when they heard the king, they left, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them. So this wasn't just a normal star, because now it's moving and showing them where Bethlehem is, and, and actually, you know, lights on the house where they were staying. It came and stood over where the young child was. At this point, like I say, he was probably about a year old or so. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. It probably had disappeared and then reappeared. And when they had come into the house, which by this time they've settled down into a house, they aren't living in a manger anymore, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshiped him. Interesting, here's Jesus, little boy. Here's Mary, the mother of God. And they don't fall down and worship both of them. They don't say, oh, hail Mary, mother of grace. They see Jesus, they see Mary, they worship Jesus. Sorry, I don't want to pick on Catholics tonight, but I just think that's interesting. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so they gave these three gifts, gold. Gold, obviously, speaking of God, divinity. Every, you know, the symbolism of gold is always that it's from heaven, that it's divine. And so the gold probably also representing Jesus' birth because his origin is from heaven, is from God, and he is God. So you see that in his birth. Frankincense, a sweet-smelling aroma, probably referring to and recognizing that his life would be lived in a way that was, that was sweet and pleasant and beautiful. And then myrrh, a funny gift to give to a little kid. Myrrh was embalming fluid. It was something they used to bury people. And you think, why would you give a baby myrrh? Well, obviously, Jesus was born in order to die. And so this was prophesying of the fact that Jesus, even at this point, you know, when, uh, as, as Mary had this baby, she realized very soon that this would, as, as the old guy Zacharias had prophesied, um, he'll pierce your heart. You're going to be in for, hey, it's great. I can, I can now, it wasn't Zacharias. What's that guy's name? Simeon. You know, he goes, I can die now because I've seen the Messiah. But Mary, he's blessed, but it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt you. And she realized early on, I'm sure, that he was going to find an unusual end. And even here, when someone's ha handing you gold, oh, great, what's next? Oh, frankincense, oh, how wonderful. Embalming fluid? What is this? Well, they knew. And, I, and so you see his, in the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh, you see maybe his birth, his life, his death. You also kind of see maybe the tr a reference to the Trinity in a way, because gold, speaking of God the Father, frankincense, speaking of the Holy Spirit, and myrrh, speaking of Jesus, the one who would die also. And so anyway, they gave the gifts. Interestingly, later, when... Uh, um, there, there are a couple times in the prophets when it, when it talks about the second coming and it says that there will be gold and frankincense. It leaves off the myrrh because he's already died. 
Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country in other ways. So these guys, after giving their gifts, meeting Jesus, God came and told them in a dream, don't go tell Herod where he is. Just head off and they circled around and went back home in another way. Now, when they had departed, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Arise, take the young child and his mother and flee to Egypt and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. So God warns them at this point, it's not safe in Israel, and we'll see why in a short time. But they take off and go to, go to uh, live in Egypt. And was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, it's kind of interesting here as we begin to see prophecies fulfilled. And if your Bible is like mine, whenever it has an Old Testament quote, it indents it and puts it in italics. And as you start looking through Matthew, and even in the parts that we've looked at already, it's amazing how many times the Old Testament is quoted. And it's pointed out as in order to fulfill the prophecy, here's what happened. And in fact, Matthew has more Old Testament quotes and fulfilled prophecies than all three of the other gospels put together. Again, because it's presenting him as the Messiah, it's showing the Old Testament spoke of Jesus. But if you start to put them all together and you realize there are over 300 prophecies concerning Jesus in the Old Testament. I mean, a lot more than that, but specific things that he had to fulfill. And if you looked at them all separately, you would say, how could someone be born in Bethlehem, but come out of Egypt, but, you know, there would be, you know, later on it talks about the mourning that would happen in Ramah in verse 18, and that he would be born in Nazareth. I mean, not born in Nazareth, but be from Nazareth. Well, when you see the whole story, Matthew lays it out. He wants to straighten this out. So he says, yeah, they were from the Jerusalem area, but he went and was born in Bethlehem. And then they headed off to Egypt. And then they went and lived in Nazareth. And so it all kind of comes together. Um, the prophecy for, uh, you know, out of Egypt I called my son is a prophecy that comes from Hosea. But interestingly, and we were just in Numbers, it was also found in Numbers chapter 24 when um, Balaam was prophesying. And again, there was this reference to the Messiah coming out of Egypt. And so uh, another fulfilled prophecy. So Herod, when he saw that the wise men weren't coming back, he was mad. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. This is why we know that Jesus wasn't just an infant when this happened, because if they had said, yeah, we just saw the star last week, then he would have just said, kill all the babies that are, you know, six months old or younger. Because he said two years, I figure it's probably likely that they said, it's been about a year. And just to be careful, he just doubled that and killed everyone under two. But at least we know from this that time passed by before the wise men actually came. And so Herod said, kill them all according to the time which he had determined. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Ramah was a city about 
40 miles or so north of Jerusalem. Now, and Bethlehem was about the same distance south of Jerusalem. And so the idea of nothing really happened in Ramah, but by saying that the weeping was heard in Ramah, there was a perimeter around Jerusalem. And so he looked at, okay, here's how far Bethlehem is. Now let's just draw a circle around so in case they've kind of wandered around a little bit, we'll, we'll nail them all. And so by saying there's a voice of mourning heard in Ramah, the idea is that far away even, you know, that 80 miles away and all around in all directions from Jerusalem that this was going on. And again, it was, it was prophesied by Jeremiah. Now when Herod was dead, verse 19, behold, Anne again, an angel of the Lord, appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Arise, take the young child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose and took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus, who was a son of Herod the Great, he was a Herod also, he was about as bad as his dad, was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, don't you wish God would just come to you in a dream every once in a while and save you from some of the stuff you get yourself into? But he turned aside and went into the region of Galilee. So instead of going back into Judea, the area that was down there next to the Dead Sea, to the west of the Dead Sea where Jerusalem is and everything, instead of going there, they headed up and went up near the Galilee, which is if you from the Dead Sea follow the Jordan River up and the Sea of Galilee is up there. He ended up going up and staying there in Nazareth. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, you might remember when we studied Nazarite vows, a lot of people get it confused. The Nazarite vow where you don't cut your hair and, you know, certain things, you weren't allowed to drink, touch dead people and things like that. That has nothing to do with Nazareth. Nazareth was a place up there near the Galilee. Now, there are some people who once in a while will show you this and say, where is it? that it prophesied that Jesus would be from Nazareth. It says that, that, was, that the prophet spoke and it was fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. And if you look in your computer program, you're not going to find that quote anywhere. And so I've had people who think they can trip me up by saying that. Oh, where does it say that in the scriptures? And their point is, see, there are other books that they thought were scripture and so on. But in actuality, it's a, it's a little bit of a play on words because the, the word for branch, well, Nazareth was named after the Hebrew word nazir, which, is, which means branch. And, and that word, they, they named it that actually. It was a place that no one really respected. It was kind of like, it's just a branch in the road. It, I grew up in Stanton. <laughs> yeah, and Stanton, it was the pits living in Stanton, but, but they called it the crossroad of vacation land. That was their motto. It was a dump. No one would want to go there and go, oh, let's go vacation in Stanton. But it was, you know, they called it the crossroad of vacation land because the beach was four miles away, Knott's Berry Farm was four miles away, Disneyland was four miles away, the racetrack at Los Alamitos was four miles away. So all kinds of cool places are within, you know, distance of it. But you didn't, growing up, brag about being from Stanton. And Nazareth was kind of that way. It was a branch. Now that Hebrew word is used repeatedly, especially by Isaiah, when he prophesies concerning Jesus, 
And he, and he calls them the branch, the nazir. And so, like, for instance, well, you remember in Isaiah 53, one of the prominent places, the first couple verses there, when it says, Who's believed our report? To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he will grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of the dry ground. A nazir, a, just a branch. Isaiah 9, verse 1 says it. Isaiah 40 says it. So that's, where the, that's what he's referring to is several times messianic prophecies in Isaiah and a couple other prophets that referred to him as being that Nazir. And, and so he was said to be from Nazareth because they lived there. I wasn't born in Stanton, by the way, but I can't really... I was born, we lived in Garden Grove, so you can't go, well, I wasn't really from Stanton, I was from Garden Grove. It's like people still go, yeah, so what? And I lived in a chicken coop in Garden Grove, that's even worse. But, you know, I just tell people I was born in Newport Beach because Hogue was the only hospital around back then, and so that sounds good. <laughs> Never lived there. <laughs> I'm kind of a Nazarene, I think. Um, John the Baptist. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. He was prophesied that, that he would come before. Well, we see it here, but also over in Malachi, it says God would send a messenger ahead of time. But in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 40, it prophesies the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the Baptist, the one who was a cousin of Jesus Christ, his mom and Mary were sisters. Probably also Salome, the mother of, of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, was probably also one of their sisters. They were probably all cousins. But John, it says, this describes his ministry, doesn't go into the birth. You find that over in Luke chapter 2. But it says, John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Looked like a homeless guy. And then Jerusalem and Judea and all the region around the Jordan went out to him. They were out there and he was preaching and they were listening. Amazing. Not that unusual in those days, by the way, for kind of weird looking prophets to pop up and people would start to follow them because everyone was desiring to see. I mean, here they had been overrun for so long. Now with seeing the Greeks fall and the Romans be there and, and, and there were, the Jews were finding themselves more and more in hot water with government officials and taxation was really obvious. And so there were a lot of messianic groups who were looking for the Messiah to come. And so a guy could get an audience pretty easily, and John the Baptist did. And it says that, that uh, they went out to him and they were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. This baptism wasn't the full baptism like we do. It was, certainly they were immersed. They probably did it about like we do. But at this point, he was just saying, look, if you want a fresh start, repent of your sins and come down here and be baptized. And so they were doing it. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, he, he wasn't much of a PR guy. When the big shots came out, the VIPs, he said, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
So he saw these people coming out kind of as a fad, kind of like, oh, yeah, sure, if everybody else is going to do it, why not? I'll do it, too. You know, I, I've known people before, and I've even been down at the beach baptizing people, and somebody comes up and goes, oh, how much does it cost or something like that? They don't know anything about it. And, oh, no, it's free. And they go, well, you know, I was baptized as a baby, and I was baptized in the Lutheran church, and, I, and we had a Wiccan wedding, and we did. And they go, so can I do this too? Like, oh, yeah, I'll just touch all the bases. That way, whatever happens, whoever's right, whoever's wrong, get baptized in the Mormon temple, get baptized at Corona Del Mar, whatever, and I'll be okay. And that's kind of what they were doing, and he called them out for the phonies that they were. He said, you guys are a bunch of snakes. You don't realize that getting baptized doesn't do anything if you don't repent from your sin, if you don't change your life, if you don't turn around. And I think God would say that to a lot of people today. Christianity isn't just a religion to join up with. It's not just something to check off of your to-do list and say, okay, we've done that. A tree that doesn't bear fruit, the ax is laid to the roots. It's going to be cut down. It's going to be destroyed. Jesus says as much when he talks about the vine and the branches and what happens to branches that don't bear fruit. They're going to be taken away and burned. Theologically, you can make of that whatever you want, but that's what it says. And then he said, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So he's saying, you know, you guys are coming out, and I'll baptize you to repentance, but there's one that's coming after me. Man, wait till you see him. I'm not even worthy to carry his shoes. He's amazing. And when he comes, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, there are a lot of people who would say, okay, what is that? What's the Holy Spirit and fire? Seems like it's talking about two baptisms. Probably is. There are some people who would say that it's actually referring to the one baptism, and that is the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Because when in Acts chapter 2, when they were baptized with the Holy Spirit, there were tongues of fire that came on their heads. And so people would say, you know, that's what it's talking about. But in Acts 2, it says it was like there were tongues of fire. It doesn't actually say there, were little, there was literal, literal fire there. And also in the context, he goes on. He's obviously talking about judgment when he says that um, he's got this fan. He's going to gather the wheat into the barn and he'll burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So when he's talking here about Jesus, he's referring to two different events. One of them, probably the day of Pentecost, the baptism with the Holy Spirit. The second one, his second coming, when he comes and baptizes the world with fire, destroys the enemies of God, destroys those who reject him with fire. And so John the Baptist is saying, all I can do is talk to you about repentance. But when Jesus comes, he's going to do a work that's unbelievable. The first element of it involves the church age, involves our opportunity to have God working in our lives in a powerful way. Now, there are a lot of people, when you talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit or the baptism with the Holy Spirit, there are a lot of people who get kind of confused. And some people believe that this happens just when you're saved. 
But John actually had disciples who hadn't been baptized with the Holy Spirit, but they, had, they were disciples already in the book of Acts. And when we go through the book of Acts, we'll go into this in detail. But in 1 Corinthians, it says that with one spirit or were we all baptized into one body. And so there are a lot of people who take that verse and say the baptism of the Holy Spirit is something that every Christian has. Because every Christian does have the Holy Spirit within them. And that is true. Every Christian, if, you're not, if you don't have the Holy Spirit in you, you're not God's. But after they received the Holy Spirit, there was yet this baptism of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 12, it's talking about baptism into the body. But this is talking about being baptized with the Holy Spirit. And that's that experience where the Holy Spirit comes upon you and empowers you for service to God. And that's something that doesn't happen automatically at salvation. And I think usually that's not the case. I think usually this is when, you know, you have the Holy Spirit in you. Jesus in the upper room with his disciples said, receive ye the Holy Spirit. And he breathed on them and it says they received the Holy Spirit. Obviously, if he said receive it, they did. So they had the Holy Spirit in them. And yet, after he rose and there before Pentecost, he said, go and wait until you receive the promise of the Father, until you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so obviously, receiving the Holy Spirit and being baptized in the Holy Spirit, two different things. But being baptized with the Holy Spirit is when we submit ourselves totally to Him, open ourselves up to Him, and He does that work in our lives where He empowers us for service, where He gives us the ability to be controlled by Him. And sadly to say, all Christians have not been baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, there are some people who want to argue this point and say, you know, yeah, but what you're really talking is filling, not baptism, and things like that. I, I saw Ari Tori, who, uh, Tori was a guy who wrote a book about, uh, several books about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and, and some people were arguing with him one time and saying, you shouldn't call it the baptism. You should just call it filling of the Spirit. Then we're with you, but saying baptism, no, that's too Pentecostal, that's too weird. And Tori said, well, look, he said, first of all, it's obvious there are some people who are walking with God, who are Christians, and yet they just have no power at all. It seems like they have no victory over sin. It seems like they're not growing. They're gutless. And there are other Christians who are on fire, who are, who are excited, who are witnessing, who, who love God, the fruit of the Spirit flowing through their lives. He said, it's obvious that there are those two kinds of Christians. Now, he said, I would rather have the right thing with the wrong name than the wrong thing with the right name any day. And I think that's the bottom line. If you have a problem with the concept of, of what John was prophesying here, the baptism with the Holy Spirit, then that's okay. I'm not going to fight with you. I'm not going to force it on you or anything like that. But all I can do, I can tell you personally, that when I became a Christian, it was a radical change. But when I also got to the point where I just completely opened myself up to the Holy Spirit and asked him to baptize me with the Holy Spirit, that something happened and there was a power and there was a difference. And if you are satisfied with where you're at with the Lord, fine, no problem. But if you ever have that feeling of going, I don't even know if I've been baptized with the Holy Spirit, I want to encourage you to just ask him for it. Just ask. Jesus said, a, a, a good dad is going to give a kid what he asks. How much more will God give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And so, 
You know, if, if that's something that you, you, you need some more power, you, you feel like maybe there's something missing, that's something to ask for. And, and if you ask, you receive it. It's not necessary to feel a certain thing. There are some people when they're baptized with the Holy Spirit that feel like, oh, it felt like cotton candy or I felt this electrical jolt going through my body or, you know, whatever. That's not what it's about. But you know, is the Holy Spirit working in your life with power or isn't he? And if there have been walls that are blocking, maybe this is something that's missing. And maybe you need to, that work of the Spirit in your life in a different way. If, if people, or if you look at yourself and you're just going, you know, I don't think I have a lot of joy and love and peace. I, everyone's always asking me what's wrong with me. And it seems like I try to minister, it's just frustrating, it doesn't click. Well, it could be. It could be that this is the missing piece. I digress. But anyway, if you'd like to talk more about that or something, I'd, I'd be more than happy to talk to you. But honestly, if it's an area of lack in your life, go to the guy that can do something about it and just ask. And if you've asked and you say, God, I want everything that I can have of you, then things will happen. Things will start stirring up. You'll be amazed at what God will do. And that's all you have to do. I was first really afraid of it. Because, frankly, I was afraid that I'd just, my head would start spinning or I'd just start blabbing in tongues or, you know, something like that or, you know, weird things would happen or I'd become a strange person. I'm like, okay. Some of that, some of that turned out to be true. But it took me a while to then go, okay, God, even if you're going to make me a weird person... And even if things are going to happen that I don't understand, and even if gifts start flowing through me, even if I start speaking in tongues and it's all out of control and whatever, if that's what you want to do, if you want to make a fool of me, then God, you can even do that. And when I was baptized with the Holy Spirit, I didn't immediately speak in tongues. I did later, and that's a whole different subject. Praying in tongues is a gift that God's given us to communicate with him personally. It's not something that you have to do it in order to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. It's something that God will allow us in order to commune with him in a special way uh, for edification and everything. But don't freak out. It's not something God's going to force on you or something like that. It's, but you do need to be filled with the Spirit. You do need to. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is really the first time that you're totally filled with the Spirit is kind of my read on it. And there are some good, R.A. Torrey, his books on the Holy Spirit are really great. Pastor Chuck's book, um, like Living Water would be one of them that would really help you if you want to read more in this area. And I already said way more than I intended. Um, so where were we? We were in chapter three. I know that. Um, yeah. So verse 13, Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to John at the Jordan to be baptized. And John tried to prevent him. He goes, hey, I'm not going to baptize you. You're the guy I was just talking about. I need to be baptized by you, and you're coming to me. But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. He said, Okay. And when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Why did Jesus get baptized? It was a baptism of repentance. He didn't need to repent. He had never sinned. 
Why would he be baptized? Well, two reasons. He said, I'm doing this to fulfill all righteousness. This is the right thing to do. I need to do it. Well, first of all, and, and baptism really has a couple of areas of significance for us as well. First of all, it's identifying with God and with his people. Jesus Christ wanted to say, I am one of you. I don't have sin on me like you do, but one day I will have your sin on me. And as a result, my ministry starting and right off the top, I want to identify as being one of you. But secondly, baptism is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul said that as many as are buried in baptism. And so it's a picture of us identifying with him, but at the same time identifying with his death as we go under the water, it's like him going in the ground, and as we come up out of the water dripping wet, it's a sign of the resurrection because if we died with him, we will also be raised with him. And so Jesus Christ previewing what his ministry would ultimately be and identifying with the people and saying, I'm one of you. He allowed himself to be baptized. The Holy Spirit came upon him. Again, you get a clue. He was just talking about this. Uh, John was just talking about the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And now Jesus himself demonstrates the Holy Spirit coming upon him like a dove. Um, it goes to show you that it's not just once, because obviously Jesus was, was filled with the Holy Spirit before this happened. But in this graphic way, the people could see, hey, I see. God's pleased with him. The Father speaks from heaven. You see the whole trinity. Father speaking from heaven, Holy Spirit descending like a dove, and Jesus Christ himself. By the way, this passage completely destroys a theology that a lot of people hold, and it's called modalism. It's the idea that, oh, I understand the trinity. Sometimes God appears as the Father, sometimes as the Son, sometimes as the Holy Spirit. Like God is kind of like you know, a, a triune Hulk where, you know, or Clark Kent and Superman, you know, you just, he's like, oh, and you never see the two of them together in the same place. That's how eventually Lois Lane should have figured out and Jimmy Olsen and the rest of them, hey, wait, Clark and Superman, you never see them together. But, but you know, God isn't that way. Because here they are all together at the same time at the baptism of Jesus. And, and if Jesus needs the Holy Spirit descending on him, we do too. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your son. And it's exciting. We're just reading through just the early chapters. We're just getting going. The ministry's just starting of what he's going to do. And, and Lord... As many times as we hear the story, God, we never get over it. It's just such a wonderful story that has to do with us ultimately because you sent Jesus Christ to reveal yourself to us through him. And Lord, it's hard for us to relate our emotions to things that are divine. It's hard for us to focus and comprehend that this one who lived 2,000 years ago is alive today. But we believe that he is and we love him. And we desire to live our lives for him. And we call ourselves Christians because we want to identify with the Messiah. God, thank you for your word that reveals him to us in so many exciting ways. Lord, continue to open our eyes to who you are. Because when we see you and we look at your face, 
The things of earth just grow dimmer and dimmer in the light of his glory and grace. And we thank you for that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. Hey, if, if you don't know Jesus and you'd like to accept him tonight, I'd love to talk to you. And in fact, I saw Dean before the service and Shirley, if, you, if you'd like to, some prayer. Maybe you've been struggling. Maybe you would, you've never asked to be baptized with the Holy Spirit and you'd just like somebody to, to pray for you. They won't do anything weird to you. They won't start tickling you or something when they do it, but just, and then you're not gonna, okay, now start saying, eat a bite of Honda until you start speaking in tongues or something. It's not like that. But they would love to pray with you. If you'd like prayer, if you're struggling in some area of your life, just go through those doors, prayer rooms on the left. There are people there who love you and would just love to spend a few minutes with you in prayer. And just have a great rest of the week. I'm excited about this study in Matthew. I love this book. I love the whole Bible, but Matthew's a great one because Jesus is my favorite subject. And this is a way for us to get to know him more personally. And so it's going to be a great time. And I'll see you on Sunday. We're going to have communion on Sunday morning. So make sure you come out for that. And God bless you.